Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, November 13th. In today's news, President-elect Joe Biden considers Hillary Clinton her U.N. ambassador. Two senior DHS officials get forced out for not being sufficiently loyal to President Trump. And the German couple behind Pfizer's vaccine doesn't own a car. Now they're billionaires. But first, the big idea. On Thursday, six American service members were killed in a helicopter crash during a peacekeeping mission in Egypt. Tropical Storm Ida made landfall in North Florida, contributing to severe flooding. The stock market tumbled as the number of Americans infected with the coronavirus broke more records. There were more than 150,000 new cases yesterday alone. At the White House, President Trump spent the day as he has most others this week, sequestered from public view, tweeting grievances, falsehoods, and misinformation about the election results and about Fox News' coverage of him. Neither he nor his aides briefed reporters on the news of the day or reacted to Democratic leaders who accused Republicans of imperiling the pandemic response by refusing to accept reality over the election results. David Nakamura writes from the White House that the contrast between our nation grappling with an ongoing global crisis and a president consumed with his own political problems highlights a fundamental contradiction at the heart of Trump's assault on the integrity of the U.S. election system. He is leveraging the power of his office in a long-shot bid to stay in the job while simultaneously ignoring most of the public duties that come with it. White House aides disputed this notion that Trump was reneging on his responsibilities, releasing a list of executive actions he's taken since the election. The list includes an order from Thursday banning U.S. investment in Chinese military companies, as well as a proclamation wishing the U.S. Marine Corps a happy 245th birthday. But it was President-elect Joe Biden, not the sitting president, who offered the first public condolences to the families of our servicemen who died in Egypt. He said he joined all Americans in honoring their sacrifice, and he promised to keep their loved ones in his prayers. As Washington has become completely paralyzed over the past 10 days, more than normal, one million new Americans have tested positive for the contagion and death numbers are spiraling rapidly. Biden joined congressional Democratic leaders yesterday in demanding a large new economic relief package to address the drastically worsening pandemic before the end of the year. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell flatly rejected their proposal. Behind the scenes, aides in both parties tell our congressional correspondent Erica Werner that no negotiations are happening whatsoever. That means it's highly unlikely any kind of economic relief deal will come together during this lame duck session. Congress is also confronting a December 11th deadline when government funding will expire, and lawmakers are at work on a package to forestall a government shutdown. But they're worried even if they reach a deal, Trump won't sign it. As the dithering continues in the nation's capital, state and local leaders are taking action. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has just issued a stay-at-home advisory for the nation's third largest city, and asked all residents to cancel Thanksgiving plans. Bill de Blasio in New York is considering reclosing schools in the nation's largest city. Even in Iowa, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds has long been an opponent of any closures or mask wearing, but she's said that while those seemed like feel-good options in the past, she's now prohibiting any maskless indoor gatherings of 25 or more 
and she's requiring those attending larger outdoor masks, outdoor events to wear a mask. Although improvements in care have pushed the mortality rate from COVID below 1% in America, 1,549 people still died yesterday of the virus. That's the highest daily death toll since April. The rapid rise in hospitalizations foreshadows a long period of rising deaths. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Friday the 13th. Number one, Biden is beginning to see more support, if indirectly, from Republicans as senior GOP lawmakers called publicly for him to receive classified intelligence briefings. The Trump administration continues to refuse to allow him to see any classified material. Biden was also projected overnight by The Washington Post as the winner in Arizona, becoming the first Democratic nominee to carry the Grand Canyon state since 1996. This is the fourth state Biden has flipped, and Georgia remains too close to call, though he holds a narrow lead. Biden also talked yesterday with Pope Francis. He will be our second Catholic president after JFK, and he expressed a desire to work with the pontiff on issues including poverty, climate change, and immigration. One of Biden's very first tasks will be filling the top positions in his White House and cabinet. We don't expect any more formal announcements until next week. He's spending the weekend at his beach house in Rehoboth, Delaware. Our colleagues Sungmin Kim, Josh Dossie, Matt Viser, and John Swain report that one intriguing name being discussed privately in Biden's inner circle for the cabinet is Hillary Clinton. They're looking at Clinton as the potential U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. The thinking is that it would be a way for Biden to highlight the importance of that position in his administration, and placing her there would raise the prestige of the U.N. itself at a time when global cooperation and the U.S. role on the world stage more generally has ebbed. Another name we're hearing as a potential cabinet pick is Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. The Democratic congresswoman from Illinois chaired the House campaign arm and oversaw the party's losses of House seats in the 2020 elections, but she has signaled interest in leading the Agriculture Department. Number two, Valerie Boyd, the top official for international affairs at the Department of Homeland Security, was forced to resign yesterday afternoon. So was Brian Ware, a senior policy aide at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Nick Miroff and Ellen Nakashima report that the demands for their resignations came from White House Personnel Office Director John McEntee, the 30-year-old has recently intensified efforts to purge appointees who have failed to demonstrate sufficient fealty to the president. He's Trump's former body man. The latest removals come as DHS's top cybersecurity official, Chris Krebs, told colleagues that he too expects to be fired at any moment by the White House. Despite pressure not to do so, Krebs yesterday joined state and local election officials in releasing a statement that refutes claims by the president and his supporters that voting systems and equipment were compromised during the election. The statement reads, quote, The November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. While we know there are many unfounded claims and opportunities for misinformation about the process of our elections, we can assure you that we have the utmost confidence in the security and integrity of our elections, and you should too. Number three. At 8 p.m. on Sunday night, the phone rang with a call that Yugur Sahin, the chief executive of a German medical startup called BioNTech, had been anxiously waiting for. Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla was on the line to tell him that preliminary analysis from phase three trials of the coronavirus vaccine they had jointly developed showed 90 percent success. 
Our Berlin bureau chief, Loveday Morris, interviewed Sahin in Germany yesterday along with his wife and co-founder, Oslem Turishi. The interim results put the 55-year-olds in the front of the pack racing for a safe and effective vaccine. The stock for BioNTech soared, and the small company, by pharma standards, had yet to see any vaccine using its technology brought to market before now. Sahin and Tarici, now billionaires, celebrated with cups of Turkish tea at their home. The husband and wife behind this promising candidate are the sort of people who literally do not own a car. And when they got married back in 2002, they took the morning off for their wedding day, and then they went back to the laboratory. As she put it, quote, half a day was sufficient to celebrate. Both children of Turkish immigrants to Germany, they met while working on an oncology ward in Hamburg. They found that they shared an interest in getting the body's immune system to fight cancer. BioNTech didn't have the resources to conduct large-scale clinical trials or the production and distribution that's necessary. So they approached Pfizer, and in April, the American company invested an initial $185 million toward development and said it would release another $563 million more based on milestones in development. Asked about Trump's claims that they couldn't have developed this vaccine without his help and that they sat on the data until after the election, the couple laughed and said that is complete nonsense. Tarici said she's not sure where the U.S. government would have had any input at all in this. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, November 13th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.